Uh, Luke's gospel was written by a skeptic uh, named Luke. Um, if you need a Bible, by the way, there's some guys walking around. You can slip up a hand and those guys will give it to you. Um, Luke's gospel was written by a, a skeptic and Luke was a doctor. Um, and he wrote uh, about Jesus, uh, that your life needs to be all about Jesus. And that's what we call the series that. And so Luke is writing uh, about Christ in order to prove to skeptics uh, that he is who he said he was. And, and so um, that is why he's writing this book. So he wants to prove an excellent work even for us today in, in 2010, 2011, um, I'm behind, 2011, that we could see uh, a beautiful, wonderful Savior. And, and so he's writing in this way. And what we're going to see here is that Jesus, when he comes on the scene, he's, no one is ever the same after they see Christ for the first time. Um, before he was born, uh, people waited for him and anticipated his coming. Uh, when he was a baby, people worshipped him. Uh, when he was a, a teenager, people were astonished at the words that he said. And then later on as an adult, we see him healing. We see him doing miraculous things. And ultimately, he's, he's calling people to himself. And, and what you'll notice here, especially where we're at today, is that Jesus' words bring life to those who are broken. But for the religious people, the, the people who think they have it all figured out, it is, it is infuriating to them. It is the most infuriating message to these, uh, they're called Pharisees. These Pharisees had so much trouble uh, grasping what Christ actually talked about. And so for us, I, I think what we end up doing when we read the scriptures and we look into the gospels, um, we, we struggle with Jesus's, how, how they respond to Jesus. And you say, well, how, how could they not like Jesus? I mean, he seems like a great guy. Um, he heals people. Um, he's, he's, he wants to reach out to those who are sick and those who are broken. I mean, that doesn't seem so bad. I mean, wh why are they so hard on Jesus? And it's so easy for us to kind of stick our noses up and say, well, I wouldn't respond that way to Christ. I, I, would, be, I would look different if Christ were to come at me this way. And my challenge is, I don't think we would, all right? I, I think we too would have problems and objections to Jesus if we saw him face to face. Now, now let me give you a couple examples of this. Okay, Luke 14, it says this. Here, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase this for you real quick in Luke 14. It basically says, if you hate your mom, your dad, your wife, your children, your brother, and your sister, you can't be my disciple. I mean, does anybody have a problem with that? I mean, some of you are okay with that, right? But honestly, we have problems with, with that teaching, do we not? Okay, am I the only person that has a problem with that? Do we have a problem with that, right? Good, like five of you. Okay, good. Jesus said this. He, there's a guy in Matthew 8, 22. Uh, you have a guy who um, his uh, a family member dies. And Jesus is calling him to follow him. And, and what Jesus says is, follow me and let the, let the dead bury their own. He's like, you can't even go to this guy's funeral. You, you've got to come with me and follow me. Anybody have a problem with that? Okay, Jesus tells his disciples, take up your cross and follow me. That means be ready to give your life and die the most horrific death for me. So Jesus tells his disciples. Then you even have further, he, just simple things like love your enemies. When we're confronted that, that's challenging, that's hard. So for the religious 
people who saw Jesus, he is wrecking their world. Their whole worldview is shot down. And now they're confronted um, with the gospel because what they were doing, what these Pharisees were doing, they were bringing in their own religious experience into their own interpretation of the gospel or to scripture. And, And what if I told you that I think all of us in this room, whether we like it or not, we bring our own baggage into how we understand the person and work of Christ. We bring our own religion and our own laws, and we expect Christ to fill in the gaps of those broken pieces of our own religion instead of looking to him first and then killing everything else and that he becomes ultimate in your life. And so, let me give you an example of what this looks like. And this is a little bit of a longer introduction because I really want to unpack this idea for you. I'm trying to educate my son on superheroes. Um, he's four years old, and I think those are really important things for young men to understand superheroes. So I can't show him um, Dark Knight for obvious reasons. He's four, right? Um, I'll wait until next year. No, um, but um, <laughs> he, what I had to do is I had to start with some, some elementary things. So I did uh, have Netflix, Netflix, and on Instant Watch, you can watch the, the, the Batman, the 1966 version of Batman. And that is like the cleanest thing in the world, right? And, and so Batman and Robin um, are fighting against uh, the worst possible scenario. It's Joker, Riddler, Penguin, and Catwoman, all of them at once. And this is a tough deal. And, and what happens in the movie is that um, the, the Joker or that whole... That whole team of villains, they plant a, a bomb into a, a bar. And, and, and the scene doesn't even show people who are drunk or anything. It's just kind of social and there's people eating. And, and there's a scene where Batman picks up this ridiculously huge bomb. And he's running around with it over his head trying to figure out where to put it. And he finally finds like, uh, he, he's trying not to throw it here, but there's a baby carriage over here, so he avoids that. And there's some ducks over here, so he doesn't want to throw it over there because he wanted to kill the ducks. And so he finally finds a, a one spot to throw it in, and almost, he risks his life. He almost blows up himself. And so Robin, there's a scene where Robin finds him, and he's like, holy heart rate, Batman. This is, you know, this is what happened. And so he finds, he finds Batman, he comes up to him, and Batman's like, um, you know, well, I made it, I, I got rid of the bomb, and every, every other word is like, you know, the old Batman's like that. And so he says, and this is, this is what Robin says to Batman. This is 1966, Batman and Robin. This is what Robin says. He says, you risked your life for that riffraff at the bar? And Batman responds, they may be drinkers, Robin, but they're still human beings. And I was like, that is now, okay, Batman in 1966 is like the moral standard, right? He is what you look at if this is what you want to look like. If you want to be a good moral person, Batman is your guy. Fast forward 23 years, 1989, I'm 10 years old, half of you weren't born yet, and Batman's now Michael Keaton, right? And it gives you a glimpse into his childhood, his his family gets killed, and he gets to watch it. And you look at his moralism and his example to the world, if you will. Like, all right, first night, he makes Vicky Vale. Like, they hook up, right? They hook up. 
And like, he's like not even worried. Like, he's like, she doesn't even understand me. I'm this deep guy. I've got all these issues. She had a tough childhood. I can totally sleep with a chick and it's okay, right? You know? And then it, it, it continues to go down with Batman. I mean, he, he becomes Val Kilmer and George Clooney. I don't even have to go there, right? And then later, he's Christian Bale. He's the Dark Knight. He's got this darker revenge story. And he's just this really person. You just can't even get inside of his head. And you don't understand him. And he's all about, I've got to become a different man to take out the, the joke, you know. And so he's, he's, he's this totally different example than 1966. And I'm not saying that, I'm not doing the message on, like, I think we've gotten less Christian or more Christian. I don't think that at all. I just think there's a different moral standard that our world has done. And I think what's happened is the church has borrowed uh, a moral code and they brought it into the church. And they said, this is what a good Christian looks like. A good Christian's not someone who helps people in bars. Right? A good Christian's not someone who, who does that. I and mean, we can do this with, with uh, do we need to compare the Cosby show to the O.C.? And we can do that. Do we need to even look at song lyrics and compare song lyrics? Because it's happened over and over again. And what's happened is the culture, I don't think, Christ, I don't think Christianity is less popular or we've gotten less moral or anything like that. I think, honestly, Christianity has historically, in America, has borrowed what the culture says to be true. And we've just done that. And that's become the standard of moralism. That's become the religion that we've created, and that's become, honestly, the false gospel that we teach. The Batman gospel, right? And so what is happening here is Jesus comes across three, he comes across three different scenarios in which he confronts the Pharisees on their religion and how they think that the gospel should be presented. All right, so turn with me in uh, Luke 5. That's where we'll be. Luke 5. Verse 32 is where we'll go. Now, let me just give you kind of a, what's happened here. Um, Jesus is healing people, and then he goes into the worst possible people ever, the tax collectors. And I said this last week, the tax collectors are kind of like mixing your IRS agent with Al-Qaeda, like it's the worst possible group of people ever. And Jesus pursues those people and they become his disciples. You have um, Levi becomes his disciples. And then it changed scenes. Jesus is eating with tax collectors. And the Pharisees, they can't understand this. And this is what they say in chapter 5, verse 32. I have not, call, I have not come to call the righteous, but to sinners to repentance. And then here is how they respond to Jesus' statement. Verse 33. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Right? 1966 Batman would have a problem with this, right? Correct? Jesus is eating and drinking with these tax collectors, these sinners, this group of horrific people, and he's eating with these people, and, and they're responding. And here's how they respond. They say, well, our disciples, our followers don't look like this. The people that we breed don't have this outcome. And he says, even your boy John, John didn't even do this, right? I think part of this is who the disciples are. I mean, they're fishermen. What do you expect, right? 
They're eating and drinking. Of course they are. They're fishermen. But I think another part of it is they are trying to antagonize Jesus. And they're actually challenging Jesus on discipleship. Which is, a, is, is not a good thing to do, right? You have the next thing, verse 34. Here's, here's how he responds here even further. Verse 34, he says this. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. Those are the days that we're in, by the way. Um, we're in those days where the bridegroom has left. And so what is Jesus talking about here? He's given an example of him being our bride, our, our groom. We're his bride. The church is his bride, and he pursues his bride. He, he, we enter into a, a covenant relationship with Christ, and we're never the same after that. And so that's what he's talking about. And so what he's referring here when he's talking about this fasting thing, he's talking about this. What people would do before a wedding celebration would happen is that they would fast. They would go on this fast in, in spiritual preparation for the day that they would enter into the promise of marriage. And now people fast before they get married, but it's called the LGN, um, the look good naked diet. Um, it has nothing to do with spiritual implications at all. Um, but here, they did have spiritual implications. And what Jesus is challenging them with, he's challenging them saying, listen, I'm the bride, groom. You're the bride. I am already here. The wedding is about to start. I'm about to do what, I'm, what I said that I was going to do. I'm going to set the captives free. I'm going to come to the broken. I'm going to give my life on the cross. And now people can enter into a relationship with a, with a holy, perfect God. And it's going to be incredible. The wedding has already started, so it's not a time for fasting. It's a time for celebration. It's a time for eating. It's a time for drinking. It's a time for enjoying the Savior that's right in front of us. And, and they did not get the message that Christ was obviously showing them. So what he does is he breaks it down into two different analogies. Uh, the first analogy is uh, a, a piece of garment. Look what he, what he says in verse uh, 36. He says this. He told them a parable. No one tears a piece of, uh, from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. So if you take what he's saying here, if, if you use new material to patch a hole in an old garment, like say you have an old pair of pants, and you want to put, uh, and you have a tear in it, uh, you put a patch over it, what he's saying is you'll have, you'll have two problems. One is that it won't match, right? It's not going to match. And two, um, if you, when, as soon as you wash it, it's going to shrink and you're just going to have a big old nasty rugged hole there. So what he's saying is you cannot continue to add, you can't put Christ into your own religion or your own set of rules. You're, you're trying to force Christ into this and really you need, you need to get a new pair of pants. That's what he's saying. The second thing he goes into, and he says this, he talks about the new wineskins. Um, this is one of the most abused passages of all time. If anyone wants to start something new, they always use this, whether it's biblical or not, and say, oh, what about the new wineskins, right? We've heard that, right? Um, there's even ministries called new wineskins because they're trying to say we're new, which is, if you read Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. But um, 
Look at what he says here about these new wineskins. Verse 37. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into what? Fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new for he says, the old is good. What's Jesus doing here? Well, what he's doing here, and, and, and here's a little bit of the culture that's happening. People didn't have wine bottles in. They had wine skins, which were made from uh, animal skins. And it was wrapped up into sort of this little horn-shaped thing that had a strap on it. I think maybe like in Lord of the Rings or something, you might have saw Frodo carrying something like that. But he'd have wine in it, and, you would, and what would happen was it, it would eventually get old, and it would start to ferment its own wine inside of it. And if you put new wine in there, it would often burst and so what he's saying is, hey, you, you're, you've got this new message. You've got this new covenant that's about to be introduced, the gospel. And you're trying to fit the gospel into what you've already created to be the container. You've created your own container for the gospel. And really, you need a new container and because there's a new covenant that's about to be introduced. And then he just mocks them. He just flat out mocks them in verse 39. He says... Uh, Verse 39, it says, And no one after drinking uh, old wine desires new for it. It says, The old is good. He's like, Listen, you don't even like this new message that's coming in. You are so um, religious. You are so into your own practice that when the gospel comes in, you're, you're just like, you're hanging on to what you find to be comfortable. Do we ever do that? We hang on to what we find most comfortable. So when we're confronted with the truth of the gospel, we don't want to adjust. We're like, no, God's going to have to be the one who adjusts. God's going to have to be the one to change because I've created this set that makes me feel comfortable. And it's going to be really hard here. It's going to be really hard. So what he's saying is it's easy for you to hang on to your own religious activity. It's hard for you to repent and follow what Christ actually says. He's introducing a new covenant, and this is very, very difficult. So what, what we see here is it begins to play itself out with the Pharisees. Look in chapter 6. He says this. Y'all thought I was done. Chapter 6. He says, On the Sabbath, when he was going to the grain fields, the disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is, what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, he entered the house of God and took and ate bread of, of, of the presence, which is not lawful, but for any priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And then he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, the Pharisees are calling Jesus out for what? Because right here, the G- Jesus and his disciples are traveling, and they're hungry. And so I love what the text does, because the Pharisees are assuming because Jesus is eating, he's working. But notice, they're, they're looking at it and thinking, oh, he's, he's worked and labored for this grain, but they've actually grabbed it just off the top. And they have it in their hands. It's just little seeds of grain is what they're calling it out on because it's the Sabbath. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. That's the, that's the Old Testament law. But eating on the Sabbath is okay. But they're thinking, hey, he's worked to get that food. So he's wrong. And she's like, dude, we're hungry. 
Like we've been traveling. It's okay for us to eat, and you're calling us on your own religion. And then he drops David on him, which is very interesting. Because here's what Jesus is actually calling them out on. David and Saul um, in, the, in the Old Testament, um, King David uh, was God's chosen king for the nation. Uh, Israel wanted a king, so they chose this guy Saul. Saul was very jealous of this new up-and-coming guy, David. So, so Saul was after him. David left and fled. He had followers with him. He's living really as a cowboy. He's like in caves and He's got all these followers with him, so he's hungry. And so what happens is he goes to a priest named uh, Abimelech, and Abimelech sees the only food that he can offer David is ceremonial food, food that was used for the Passover. What does he do? He gives it to David. And it would be very offensive to the religious people, but you never see God ever punishing David for that. You never see God punishing the priests for that. He's using food that's ceremonial because what is happening here, it's not, ceremonies are important, yes, but they don't ever trump hunger. David is a man after God's own heart and he's hungry. So God provides for him food, even if it's ceremonial food. So Jesus is bringing the story up to the Pharisees and is like, listen, we're hungry, we're gonna eat. This isn't work this doesn't work. And so he even adds salt to the wounds. He says that the son of man is what? Lord of the Sabbath. He's like, I'm God. I call the shots. Can you imagine how difficult this would be for them? The ones who've created all the rules. They think they are the rule setters. They are the standard. They are the moral standard. And now Christ is saying, no, you're wrong. It's about me being hungry and eating. It's about my disciples being fed so that they can rest. It goes even further. Verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might find a reason to accuse him. Don't you love that? Jesus is teaching, and they're just waiting. I wonder if he's going to heal this guy. It's the Sabbath, right? It says this, uh, verse 8. But he knew their thoughts. Now, this is horrible if you're around Jesus, and he knows your thoughts. I mean, it seems like at this point they would be, like, trying to clear their minds, right? Like, I'm around Jesus. Oh, i got to protect my thoughts, right? It says he knew their thoughts. And it says... Um, he said to the, to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to him, I, to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, he said, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored Verse 11, but they were filled with fury and disgust with no one what they might do to Jesus. Now, it seems that this seems like a pretty good day. Jesus is teaching, a guy gets healed, but the Pharisees are so fixated on the law that they forget about love. 
They forget about the man whose right hand is withered. And this, by the way, is the most casual healing that you will see so far in Luke. So far, Jesus has been healing people who were demon-possessed. He's healing people of leprosy. He's healing people that are on the verge of death. It's amazing to see what Jesus has done so far. And then I think what he did was he healed this man with a withered hand just to challenge the Pharisees and their religion. Because I don't think this is that big of a deal, honestly. I think it was like, you know what? They need to be taught a lesson here on really what it means to really see the Sabbath in a biblical way. Man with a withered hand. Yeah, that sounds good. I'll heal him on the Sabbath and challenge him because I know their thoughts. And so what he does is he heals him on the Sabbath. And, and what, would, what you would see here, on, in both scenarios, Jesus is not openly rebelling to the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law was not to work on the Sabbath. It doesn't say anything about healing people. It doesn't say anything. Uh, there's one law that, require, that says you can't heal, but it's only if the person's on the verge of death. And by the way, that particular law was not even a part of the Old Testament law. It was things that were brought into the Old Testament law and added to, just like a religious person would do. They look at a set of uh, mandates in Scripture, and then they add to it and say, no, yeah, you can do that to be a good Christian, but you also got to do these things. And that is exactly what the Pharisees have done. Historically, they've just added and added and added to the gospel, to the truth, And Jesus is challenging them. He's like, you know what? This man has a withered hand. And you're missing the purpose of the Sabbath. Because he says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save a life or to destroy it? Jesus says elsewhere, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Here's what I think is the irony here. So we unpack this. The irony is, what's the point of the Sabbath? Rest, right? That we could rest. You have Jesus. I don't know about you, but Jesus is traveling with disciples, and he wants to eat. I rest pretty well after I eat, right? Sunday afternoon, I go and eat wherever, Buffalo Wild Wings, right? I want to go home and take a nap. Because I've had good food. So what Jesus is doing is advocating rest. you, You look even further. How can a person rest if they're hungry? They're not resting. How can a person with a withered hand truly rest? Jesus is actually helping them rest. The only people who are not resting here in the text are the Pharisees. Because they're the ones sitting and judging everyone else by the law. By their own set rules. And they're bringing that in to what God has already proclaimed. And what Jesus is doing is getting to the very heart of God. He wants God to set a mandate of you get a day of rest. You get a day focusing on me and my beauty and my creation and, and what I've given you. You get a day of reflecting on the glory of the gospel. And you guys are, are, are hijacking this thing. And, and what we see about the law is, this is the interesting thing about the law. It's not made to steal our joy. It's there so that we might have joy. 
And that's why the Ten Commandments were put in place, so that God's people would have joy, so they would see the fullness of God's desires for them, God's plans for them. So when God says, hey, don't put any graven image in front of me, he's saying this, don't put anything in front of me because nothing else will compare to my glory. You're you're never going to find joy in other things. You're never going to do it. When he says, don't commit adultery, he's like, be committed to one woman. If you're not, it's going to be messy. You don't want to be on Jerry Springer, do you? Right? He's like, it's going to be messy. Listen, listen, don't, don't covet your neighbor's house. That's ridiculous. You're going to spend your life coveting your neighbor's house? Don't murder. You're going to end up in jail. You're going to end up in jail, fool, right? You, have, you will not find joy outside of what I've laid down. I'm giving you things so that you can have joy because I'm God. I'm right. You're wrong. Find joy in me. And this is why He's laid out the law for us, for his people, so they can find joy. But what the religious people did is when they added to it, they were actually killjoys. I mean, how do we mess up observing the Sabbath and keeping it holy? Only a religious person can do that. Oh, rest? Oh, is there a pillow involved, right? Or do I have to lay down? Or what, what does that look like? Oh, what was that? You know, do, I have to, do I have to put a mask over my eyes and listen to, you know... The water sounds, so do I have to do that? Do I have to put the waterfall CD in? And what does a day of rest look like? Well, I'm going to add some laws in. I'm going to make it required that people lay down and put a mask. I mean, we add all of these rules, and we're actually not having any joy at all. I mean, how can we mess? God is like, dude, I'm giving you a day off. Shut up and take a day off, right? Take a day off. You have a day off. Enjoy it. Enjoy me. And you've messed it up. By your religion. And so what ends up happening is believers in Christ, those who have been redeemed by Christ, we have an opportunity here to really show the glory of the gospel or we can absolutely kill it by adding our own rules and legalism to the gospel. I mean, how often are we portrayed as sexually oppressed, angry, bitter people? I mean, how often are we portrayed as those who are stuck up and arrogant and we don't hang out with those types of people? We don't, you know, we have rules that we don't smoke or chew or date girls that do, right? I mean, that, that didn't come out of nowhere. So we have these laws that we've added to the gospel and now people look at Christians and think we're the killjoys when actually we're the people that should have Abundant joy, the most joy because we get the gospel. I mean, if anything, in Scripture, if we see the New Testament, we see the beauty of the cross, we should be the people that have the most joy, correct? But what we do is since we bring in our own baggage, we miss the point. And the point of the Sabbath, it's not even about doing. It's just about being. It's about being in the presence of the one who created you. And so, you have in one corner, Jesus' disciples, and you have another corner, these Pharisees who are these religious people who know the rules, they know the law. And when Jesus chooses his disciples, who does he go after? Does he go after the religious people? 
No. He goes after these guys. Let's just look in verse 12. Chapter 6. In these days, he went out to the mountain and prayed. And all night, he continued to, in prayer to God. When day came, he calls his disciples and shows from them 12 who he named apostles. Simon, his name was Peter, Andrew, his brother James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called a zealot, and Judas, the son of James. Judas Iscariot, he became a traitor. Jesus, as he's pursuing his disciples, he doesn't go after the religious elite. Who does he go after? Fishermen, lowlifes, cowards. He goes after doubters, and he goes after tax collectors. Because what he's showing us in that is that his gospel trumps religion. It's not by your merit or your effort that you can obtain the grace of Christ. It's only out of his goodness, of him pursuing you, of him changing your heart from the inside out, and your life being radically different. And then you live your life in joy for him, not in bondage. And that's the gospel. That's the gospel. I think we so often miss that, that when we are saved by Jesus, you are his, we're his, we're his disciples. We've been given grace and we, let, and we rest because we're free in Christ and we enjoy him forever. And even the things that he gives us, we enjoy forever because we enjoy him above those things. Above those things. So I think what we do often is when we talk here and we challenge people to repent of their sins, which we do that, right? We challenge that. I think one of the things that we fail to do sometimes is challenge people to repent of their religion. Because I think so often we bring so much of our baggage and so much of our own religion to the gospel that we can't even have joy. I think it's, it's necessary to repent of that, saying, Forgive me, God, that I've brought all of these rules to the table. I think this is what matters over the gospel. And he even tells us that we're just, we're set free. We're set free from that bondage. For those of you who don't know him, um, you will be set free from the grace of Christ. He, there is freedom in Christ from him living a perfect, sinless life, as Luke talks about. He's born of a virgin. He lives a perfect, sinless life, and he died in your place as a substitute. And when he died, he didn't say, continue to do works. He says, what? It is what? It's finished. It's done. It's complete. So the only way that you can ever have true joy and true peace is with God, the Father. And the only way through to God is through Christ. So we need to trust him. So I think this morning, what I'd like to see happen for our church, in order for us to be a church of joy, that when we go out and we live in this city, that people would see our joy. The only way we need to do this, we need to repent of our religion. We need to say, it's not about what I can do. It's about what Christ has already done. So let's do that this morning. Let's pray.